The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. And historically, Judaism, Christianity, Islam are well-known modern-day religions that claim to monotheism. And there's many other religions that split off of the Old Testament, Old Testament history that, that claim to this. But in the modern world, monotheism has become an outdated belief that is used to support the superstitious, the power-mongering, and the uneducated people of antiquity. People who claim to monotheism need to evolve and adapt to the times. And actually, more than that, religions that claim this, they simply need to die. The question to ask, though, is monotheism one of the oldest known belief structures that continues to be relevant today because it is true? Or are people who hold this kind of belief the most ignorant of all? I recently took a class from a professor uh, at my seminary, and he argued that monotheism is the most offensive and threatening ideology that exists today. Why? Well, monotheism asserts the sole authority of a supernatural being. And if there's one God who exists, then the exclusive reality of that God has the authority and position to determine all truth, all purpose, all morality, and this kind of authority and claim is the greatest threat to the modern thought process. Monotheism confronts a whole host of belief structures. It confronts polytheism, theism, the idea that there are many gods. It confronts the idea of pluralism, which we see easily described in the bumper sticker of coexist, that there's many ways to the top of the mountain, there's many ways to God. It confronts syncretism, which is more of a practice than a belief, but the idea that we can mesh religions together and have one greater religion. But also it confronts what I'll call expressive individualism, and this is that individuals, they can determine what is true and what is right, what their purpose is, their own morality apart from God. And expressive individualism is ultimately the autonomy of the self so today, we're going to look at a passage that supports this monotheistic claim and a few of its implications. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Deuteronomy 6, chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Um, we're going to be looking at, at, at this passage here. Uh, and so picking up in verse 1, I'll read it here. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. 
And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets before your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord. So in considering this passage, uh, I will look at the, how the foundational truth that Yahweh is God alone and how it grounds all reality, how it propels intentional discipleship, and then how it requires clear evangelism. So first, we're going to look at uh, biblical monotheism grounds all reality. So Deuteronomy is the last book of, uh, of the five-fold collection of books at the beginning of the Bible, uh, known as the Torah. And this group of books includes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then lastly, Deuteronomy. Torah is a Hebrew word, uh, which most directly translated means law, teaching, or instruction. And the Torah is the bedrock and foundation for the entire Bible and for all of Christianity. It's where we see our beginnings and how the Lord has worked with people, his people. The purpose of Deuteronomy is to summarize and review the covenant, the relationship between God and Israel in preparation for entering the promised land. And this book is helping, help, uh, written to help us, remind us and anchor Israel in who their God is and the significance of his law and the blessings or curses for maintaining a close relationship with him or not. So beginning in chapter 4 and leading up to chapter 6, uh, where we are picking up, there's a frequent call for the Israelites to not forget their God. We see language such as take care, watch yourselves carefully, beware, lay it to your heart, hear. All the events leading up to this moment record very significant ways that God has acted to care and save and lead his people. Yet, a recurring theme is how his people are forgetful. They're prone to grumble they're prone to not trust their powerful and caring God who shows up over and over again. So beneath this call for Israel to remember God is an objective claim. The Lord alone is God. So one place we see this before is in Deuteronomy 4.35. It says, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Know therefore today and lay it on your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and earth beneath. There is no other. And then second, we see this passage here, or this, this idea here in this passage in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So we're going to focus more on that claim here this morning. So a couple of comments about this objective claim and then some of its implications. So for the claim, we see that there's a call for Israel to hear. It says, hear, O Israel. They're to listen, tune their ear to what, what is going to be said here. And this, this uh, claim is put into two parts. So we see the first part, the Lord our God. See, the Lord our God is, it uses the personal name of God, which is Yahweh. So anytime in our Bibles when we see a capital Lord, that's a reference back to his personal name, when Moses interacted with him before the burning bush. God revealed him to himself and said, my name is Yahweh, 
which is a direct translation, means I am. And in fact, Exodus explains it as God's name as being I am who I am. And he gave this name with no external reference or name alone, or no external reference to anything else. He, God is the one who defines himself. It is his own complete nature and character that are summed up in who he is. And there's no external realities outside of God in which to describe him. Next, we notice that there's a personal pronoun. So the Lord, our God. He's not just an approachable, unapproachable supernatural deity, but he is the personal God of Israel. He identifies himself with this particular people. So that's the first part. And then we see the second part. So the Lord, our God, and then the Lord is one. So the actual word for one here is the numeral one. And if you look at, the, at your Bible and look at a footnote on that passage, there's a variation or translation that's helpful to make clear what would have been obvious and assumed to Israel. The Lord our God is Lord alone. The Lord is one. He's one God. And this is not a claim of God's unity, though elsewhere in the Bible we can argue about his unity. The Father and the Son and the Spirit are one. But actually this is a claim of exclusivity. He is God alone of Israel, and even more than that, there is none other like him. None other like him in heaven or earth. Yahweh alone is God, and this is an objective claim that we have to deal with. So what are the implications of a claim like this? Well, one implication is that there is one reality. There is only one God, one creator, and if there is only one God, It is this God who determines all things and is foundational to all of reality. Uh, The same professor of mine that I mentioned earlier, uh, he recently argued this point by saying this. He said, if there is one and only one God, then there is only one meta-reality, only one morality, one law, one anthropology, one cosmology, one right understanding and application of sex and gender, one explanation for everything, life process, fertility, war, rain, biology. All realities sit beneath and are dependent upon the reality of God. So there's one reality here. And then secondly, the other side of this is that, the other implication is that this is an exclusive claim. If he is God alone and there is none other that is greater than him, then whatever he says goes. Whatever he claims is true. And by nature, a claim like this is exclusive. Meaning that if anyone else claimed something different outside of the meta-reality of God, that that person would be flat out wrong to contradict him. So if God exists, there is an objective reality and order that exists beneath him. And all things can be traced back and understood in relation to him. So this seems like an obvious point to many of us. And some of us might be thinking, no, duh, B, I learned that when I was six years old. Why are you talking to me about monotheism? There's one God. Well, in the context of the Old Testament and Deuteronomy, God continually sees it fitting to reassert himself as Israel's God and Israel as his people. Why does he do this? 
what's the problem here? Well, let's look back. Go look at Deuteronomy 4, verses 15 through 19 here. We'll see what the problem is. So Deuteronomy 4, 15, we hear another warning. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you will be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. So what, what's the problem here? Why must God continually reassert himself as Yahweh, God alone? The answer is because mankind has become corrupted and led to serve the creature rather than the creator. And mankind does this by crafting for himself different idols or by using creation to serve himself. At the core of man and woman's heart, there's a propensity to turn from the objective reality of God and to seek to serve self in every diverse form possible. And in this text, we see the diversity of figures representing, uh, representing men and women, animals, birds, creepy things, fish, to even the creation, the sun, the moon, the stars. And we see that we are able to twist those things into the purpose of worship, to serve ourselves for some alternate reason. We are tempted to make reality subjective, purpose subjective. We're tempted to make our morality subjective, not grounding our lives on objective truth, not grounding our lives on objective purpose and morality that God himself speaks to us. So it's here important to understand the difference between an objective truth claim and a subjective truth claim. Objective truth focuses on the reliability of an object. We see object and an objective, right? Subjective truth focus on, focuses on the reliability of the subject, the one making the claim. Objective truth focuses on the reality of the claim itself, whereas subjective truth tends to focus on the subject's preferred reality or their own perception of what is true. So in, in real life, we all operate in both realms of objective and subjective truth. One must deal with the objective reality and claim that Yahweh is God alone, but we must also embrace that uh, truth subjectively for ourselves. So we, we can't just say one is better than the other. There, there's both. Both are needed there. But the problem, and which has been prevalent for all of history, but is especially prevalent today, is that people, the subject, we tend to think that truth and purpose and morality can be defined by the self. That truth and purpose and morality are defined by looking within rather than looking to God. The Israelites did the same thing as they looked around at creation, at other nations, at their own desires. They subjectively self-defined their own reality. 
and simultaneously denied and repressed the objective reality and claim of God. The object of our faith is way more important than one's faith or trust in and of itself. To merely subjectivize truth is to live an imbalanced, ignorant life, blind to the great, all-encompassing reality of God and his existence. To subjectivize truth is that we, we can take whatever we want and believe it, and it becomes true, which denies this whole claim that God alone exists, and he is God and reigns over all things. So in seeking after and making for themselves other idols and gods, Israel willfully subject, uh, subjectifies reality, forgetting the exclusive claim of Yahweh that he alone is God. And so can I tell you something? Apart from the grace of God, the atonement of Christ, and the regenerating work of the Spirit, we are no different from the ancient Israelites. As fallen humans, and especially as Westerners, we do not like authority and someone telling us what to do. When your spouse or parent or friend or child holds up some aspect of the law of God to your face to confront your sin and the idolatry festering in your life, what is our most natural and common response? We point the finger back. We deny. We get angry. We justify our actions and thought process. The reality that Yahweh is God alone is offensive to a rebellious heart. And we need to check ourselves on this because like the Israelites, we are prone to wander and serve other gods. So this kind of exclusive monotheistic claim that Yahweh alone is God is the most threatening and offensive reality to an unbelieving world. Because if one were to acknowledge that it is objectively true, then that truth would have huge implications for their life. Not only is this reality offensive to an unbelieving world, but I think it can also be offensive to us in the church. Having considered this objective claim of what, uh, that the Lord alone is God, and I want to turn to what this claim demands of us. What is our response to this claim? And we see the response in Deuteronomy uh, in verses 5 and 6 there. Verse 5, starting, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you shall be on your heart. So what, what's the response here? Often in the Bible where we see the assertion that Yahweh alone is God, when he makes a claim to be the only one, uh, we, we see right next to that uh, is there some kind of response to this truth, to this reality. The reality and soul existence of God requires total love and obedience, total fear and submission and respect in our total being, in all our faculties, in the heart and the soul, in our might and strength. Underneath the natural impulse to seek after other gods and to look for happiness on earth under every rock is that we are lovers and worshipers at the core. If God is the creator and we are his creatures, then isn't it fitting that it would only be God alone in whom all life and joy are found? 
if he is the only pure source of life and joy, then wouldn't it be most, the most loving thing he could do to constantly remind his people to return to him and that he is God alone and then command them to love them with their total being? When the Bible declares that Yahweh is God alone, it is almost followed by some kind of a call to respond and worship and praise and love. And if Yahweh is God, he is deserving of all glory and praise and the only true source of life and joy. So if biblical monotheism is true, then all truth and purpose and morality is dependent upon that foundational reality. And to forget this truth or to put it on the back burner will have tragic consequences, especially in the church when we come to discipleship and evangelism. And that's what we're going to look now. So the second idea I want to consider here under the idea that it is a biblical monotheism that grounds all reality, we now want to look at the idea that biblical monotheism propels intentional discipleship. So biblical monotheism propels intentional discipleship. So if Yahweh is God alone and we are his people, then this love of God is to be passed down to the younger generations. God has given us a commandment so that we might do his law out of a heart of fear and a heart of love that in doing so, our life would be long and peaceful and prosperous in the presence of God. A blessed life is lived beneath the reality of the exclusive sovereign reign of God. And he desires to bless his people and the subsequent generations to follow. So where do we see this in in the text, this importance of God being known among the future generations? Well, in verse 2, he says, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son. So God's intention, is that we see three generations listed there, is that God would be known not only to his people in that moment, but in generation after generation after generation. And he is the God of all people. Verse 3, he says, that you may, greatly, uh, that you may multiply greatly. So it's implied there that there's more generations to come, more that are to be born into that blessing and to experience the presence of God, to know him, to know that he alone is God. And then in verse 7, we see a command, you shall teach them diligently to your children. And they're to teach the laws, the commands, the exclusive reality of God to their children. So this is a very familiar passage to me that I've frequently returned to over the years. But there's one detail that I've missed here. And I think it significantly impacts and fills our application of discipleship. And looking at the question of who is responsible for discipling the future generations. So what I previously assumed and and is still right is that families and parents are naturally the implied role of discipling the next generation as we read this text. But what I want to highlight here is that it's actually Israel as a people who is formally charged with this discipling task. It says, hear, O Israel, not hear, O parents, hear, O pastors, hear, O grandparents. And yes, the grandparents are doing a lot of raising of kids these days. But we see that it's hear, O Israel. Israel as a collective identity is responsible to disciple and teach the future generations. 
So this certainly includes the role of families and parents, and they have a, pro- a dominant role there. The Bible talks about that elsewhere. But it's interesting that he gives it to the collective identity of Israel. And so as we think about that for us today, discipleship takes place as the church, as a collective identity, uh, diligently teaches younger generations about the exclusive reality of God and what it means to obey and keep his commands. And so how are we as a church to do this? And verse 7 fills this in. We're to do this all the time in the flow of life. We are to talk of the commands and exclusive reality of God when you sit in your home, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you arise. We're to do it all the time in the constant flow of life. The more we talk and think about something, the more we are shaped by it. We're also to do this by intentional reminders. It says, bind them as a sign on your hand, frontlets between your eyes. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So earlier I spoke about how we are a forgetful people. Well, how do we combat that? We need to set up visual reminders and routines that keep the most important things front and center in our lives. You can imagine someone passing in and out of their house, in and out of their gate, day after day, and what do they see? Some reflection, some reminder that Yahweh is one. He's the only God. So I don't know about you guys, but I believe in my head in my head, that there's only one God and one creator. Yet, in my living, I am constantly being informed by truths or claims that are coming from a foundation that is opposed to the claim of God. I'm prone to forget that God alone is God, and I assimilate foreign gods and their following thought processes into my life. It has hopefully been observed how generational drift from the faith takes place. And maybe you guys have heard this. You have a first generation that believes something. You have a second generation that assumes something. And then you have a third generation that denies something. So the first believes, the second assumes, and then the third denies. Can anyone guess where the broad American evangelical church lives right now? I'm going to guess it's somewhere right in between assumes and denies. In this cultural moment, the broad evangelical church is losing the discipleship battle. We are losing the cultural battle. And this is a very sobering reality, and it requires a response from us as we think about generational discipleship and fervently reclaiming the exclusive reign of God on on this earth. So how are we as one little local church uh, going to respond to this reality? As we see these things happening around us, what are we going to do about that? Something's got to change. And we can't keep living assuming that the way we are living is correct. If kids and and future generations are, are growing up not knowing that there's one God, but there are many ways, or thinking there's many ways, At the core, we don't need better programs. We don't need better staff, though sometimes I often think there's someone that can surely do this better than me. We don't need better resources. 
though all these things can be helpful to us, what we need to do is to dig further into the reality that God alone is God and the only source of life and joy. We've got to keep teaching and talking about this reality with our children and with our children's children and with one another. And by we, I mean the church, which includes the family and parents, of course. But we as the church have got to talk and dig into this exclusive reality and claim of God. In the book, You Are What You Love, James K.A. Smith lays out the significance and the importance of liturgy in the individual's life. And when he uses the word liturgy, uh, he doesn't mean it in the wooden, dry sense of old church, um, though it, it, that's certainly included in the idea of liturgy. But he defines liturgy as this, as formative, love-shaping rituals. So liturgy as formative, love-shaping rituals. So in essence, you are what you love. We are shaped by what we worship, and what we worship is what we surround ourselves with. Smith goes on to say, to be human is to be a liturgical animal, a creature whose loves are shaped or shared by our worship. So you notice we are all, all litur- liturgical beings, Christian or not. Something in the world around us is shaping us and influencing us and informing us of who we are, who we are to be. But the question for each one of us here is, are we being shaped by the word of God as it points to the exclusive reality of God? And are we doing this in the context of the local church among the people? Or are we being shaped by something else? Remember, to be shaped in this manner means that these liturgies, uh, they point us to the exclusive reality of God, and they should be touching every aspect of our lives. So how are your kids being shaped right now? Kids and youth, how are you being shaped? What is the most dominant voice in your life? Is it the word of God in the context of the local church? Or is it something else? In our home, we've recently started going through the New City Catechism with our three-year-old son. And I know a number of people in this church are familiar with that. And it was a daunting task at first as I'm looking at it, and there's 40-something questions and a bunch of answers, and I have a terrible memory. But most nights we've committed to learning a new question and working with Titus to, to, uh, to give the right answer. There are songs that help ingrain it into our minds. But in this process, one of the interesting things that I've observed is that there's two sides to discipleship. On one hand, it's about trying to raise my son in the way of the Lord. But as I sit here and ask the question again every night, over again, listen to the song, the song's stuck in my head, I can't get it out, guess who is also being shaped by the teaching of the law, by the teaching of God? There's a power of liturgy that forms both parties involved in the exchange. So what what kinds of liturgies, the routines, the repetitions, the reminders, the markers, have we put in place to ensure that the current generation remains faithful and the next generation knows that Yahweh alone is God? 
Are you fully utilizing the community gathering opportunities here at E-Free? Sunday worship, life groups, life training, youth group, men's and women's ministries, children's ministry, prayer meetings, worship nights. There's a lot of things going on. Are we utilizing those that we might be shaped by them, that we might be shaped by one another as a church community? Are you inviting others into your home? Are you inviting them to join you in your hobbies? Are we going on trips together? Are we serving together in the community? Are we serving and working together inside the church? Which yesterday was a beautiful image. We had a couple in our church get married and it was incredible to watch and see how many different people in the church were involved and a part of that. That's how weddings should be when people are raised and grown in a community that we love and serve and we are shaped by one another. So all of these different types of church gatherings, they uh, don't exist for us as a church to justify our existence and to keep going on and to gain followers. But they actually exist so that we can be a gospel-centered community that finds its joy in Jesus. They exist for your good and the good of your children and your children's children. They exist to shape us into people that love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our might. So how do we build a culture of discipleship within the church community? As a church, we want to grow in how we think and pursue this idea of family ministry in the church. And it's not just how we, as the church formal, minister to families and whoever falls into that category, but it's how the church family ministers to itself with account and respect to all generations. So one idea that we have on the radar right now and we're wanting to start in the coming months is to do a regular Sunday evening church family night. And in this, it'd be a time where we can come together for a, some intentional prayer, maybe a little worship. But the bulk of the time, we want to be spent, to be spent fellowshipping over food, activity, and just spending time together as a church. To be involved in discipleship with one another means that we have to spend time together so that when we sit, walk, lie down, arise, we can teach and remind one another the exclusive reality of God and not forget that and be tempted to wander. So what are the liturgies that are forming us as a people to love and serve the only true God? The more we co are collectively formed by these kinds of liturgies, the more our corporate gatherings will continue to grow in depth and love. And as this happens, and I think it's happening right now in our church as we continue to grow, we want to continue to grow in a collective witness to the unbelieving world. And that's what I want to make a few comments on prior to closing. And the last idea here is that biblical monotheism requires clear evangelism. So biblical monotheism requires clear evangelism. So this, this isn't a passage that deals directly with evangelism. But I wanted to address the significant implication uh, that monotheism has on it. How the object objective claim that Yahweh is God alone requires us to share the gospel with clarity. So in short, if the claim is true that only Yahweh is exclusively God, then that means who all, all who make contrary claims or live in a contrary manner will one day have to face their creator and find out that this claim is indeed true. If God is 
alone God, then salvation and life and joy are only possible in God through Christ alone. Those who are not trusting in Jesus upon their own death and Christ's return, or, or Christ's return, they'll be cut off from God for all eternity in hell. And this isn't just my opinion here. This is what God of the Bible tells us. Accepting or rejecting God alone through Christ alone is a matter of life or death. Do you feel the weight of that? Do you see the offensive reality of this truth to a rebellious and unbelieving world? The claims of Christianity do not let it be an agreeable option among many. What this message requires is actually very divisive. Either we humble ourselves and approach Jesus, who, yes, is gentle and lowly and receives all who come, or we reject it, actively or passively, and face the fury of his wrath in the days to come. If you don't believe me, go and read Deuteronomy 28 and see the contrasting blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. The curses and reality behind rejecting the living God are haunting and terrifying. Who wants anybody to suffer that? I don't think any of us do here. So I have good news and bad news. Bad news. We are all deserving of the curses for disobedience that are found in Deuteronomy 28. And that's terrifying. The good news, though, is that Jesus stepped into the place of everyone who believes or will believe, and he bore the curse upon his body and soul that we deserve. The curse of our disobedience crushed him. For all who believe in in him, he steps into their place to pay the penalty of their sin. Why did he do this? So that we might receive the blessing that's also found in Deuteronomy 28. And all because of his perfect obedience. Here Jesus models for us what it means to love God with all one's heart and soul and might. Jesus did this to demonstrate his ultimate love for the Father. And to display his love for his people that they might experience restored life and joy in God alone. So what does the exclusive reality of God have to do with evangelism? Everything. It's how every Christian has been saved and how any non-Christian will be saved. The most loving thing we can do to anyone not trusting in Jesus is to clearly explain that God alone is God and it is only through Jesus, who is God, that anyone can be saved. To do less than this is unloving because there are huge consequences on the line. So as we think about the reality that God alone is God, And he requires all to come to him and to recognize that. But also that he receives all who come to him. Let's pray that God might help us to see this and to proclaim the exclusive reality of God clearly to a lost and dying world. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, Lord, needing to humble ourselves as often we just so arrogantly come to you, arrogantly come to a service, 
Lord, without respect or remembering the reality that you are God alone, that you are deserving of all glory and worship and praise. And Lord, what we offer is squat. Lord, would you convict us of that to see that you are God alone, that hope and life and joy are found in you, and that you have provided us a way back to you through Jesus. Lord, would you help us to see that we are being shaped by so many things that are not you, that we are being taken off course, Lord. And we ask that you would help us to remember that, Lord, you exclusively are God and that life will only make sense in and through you as we, as we look at the different realities, Lord, that point back to who you are. So, Lord, as a people, would you make us a discipling people that like to see, Lord, your law, your name be proclaimed to all and to the next generations. But, Lord, would you also make us a people who boast clearly and loudly of who you are, that salvation is in you alone. And, Lord, would you grow our witness as a church community too, Lord, that people could see the blessed life it is to be one of your children and a part of your church. So, Lord, give us a taste of that. And would you do these things, Lord? Only you can give us eyes to see and hearts that desire to worship in this way. Lord, transform us to that end. Would you be glorified? Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.